never felt like I fit in. Felt like I was fat. Felt like I wasn't cute enough. I wasn't smart enough. The one thing that the self-doubt did help me with was I worked extremely hard and I wanted to outwork anybody else. He was telling me, John, get out there and share your talents, your skills, your abilities, your experiences with others. Share your story. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Sign Out Podcast. This is your host, Sign Out Company co-founder, Daniel Thornton. We have a really good guest today. He is John Peters, the author of When Life Grabs You by the Baseballs, Finding Happiness in Life's Changes. How are you doing today, John? Doing good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we were so glad to have you on the interview today, especially as we started this podcast. We're looking for interesting stories of people that want to share their stories. That's one of our foundations in starting this brand is finding people that have stories to share. And I can just give you a quick story for me is how I got to know John um, or to meet him, which I think is interesting because in today's time, you just... With social media and what pops up on your timeline, you just never know kind of what your next step is. And a couple of months ago, I was on Facebook and I'm literally scrolling up on Facebook and this book comes by and I see this name, John Peters, and I see it's a baseball book because I see the cover on Facebook and I'm like, and it just rattled my mind. I was like, I know that name from somewhere. And so I click on it and I'm like, that's John Peters, the pitcher from Brenham from a long time ago. And I just thought, I was like, how interesting is that? It's been a long time since I thought about that name. And when I remember you being a pitcher in high school and then here you've written this book. And out of that, I realized, well, I think I saw that comment because a friend of mine on Facebook liked it, who then realized, oh, there's this connection there. But what I thought was even crazier is I went ahead and ordered the book from my older brother who had played baseball um, at KD and had played against your team in high school. Um, I think you were a little younger, but he had played against Brenham. And then you emailed me back right away saying, hey, how do you want this autographed? And I was like, wow, that's pretty wild. I didn't expect to have the author emailing me back. And so, you know, from there, this was just a couple months ago, I emailed you back, said, hey, I've got this podcast. What do you think about maybe, you know, sharing your story on this podcast? And we met for breakfast and here we are. And what's been cool is just to realize that we actually have a few friends in common that once we sat down and talked. um, So that, that whole, if you would have asked me four months ago, well, you're going to be sitting down with John Peters, who um, has this really incredible story and wrote this book. I'd be like, I don't even know that guy. How would that even be possible? But here we are today. So I really appreciate you joining us um, and, uh, and you know, doing this interview. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're welcome. It's a small world. It is it's a, a real sp- small world. It is a small world, especially when you start realizing that, you know, we actually have some good friends that are mutual friends. You're like, wow, I can't, you know, I didn't, I'd have never known that. But so you, You've lived an interesting life. Um, you pursued your passion early in life, which was baseball. Um, when you read in the book, you realize that uh, you've been, you were playing baseball from a young age. There's a lot of young men, but uh, you were really good at it at a very young age, right? Right. Yeah. I, uh, ever since I was six, that's all I wanted to do was play baseball. And my, my dream was to be the best baseball pitcher in the world. And, wow. that's, and that's what I wanted to do. And you did it on, on a certain level. You definitely did that. Right. So for those of you that uh, don't know John, and um, he was in the late 80s, he set the record for the most wins in high school baseball, which is absolutely amazing, 54-1. and one. Um, When you think about kids pitching high school, 
if somebody won 10 games in a season, I think that would probably be pretty remarkable. But for you to win 54 in your entire high school career is just a record that is crazy to think about. So you were the best baseball player by far in high school, right? Well, I, I don't know. I, you know, some people <laughs> might eyes. some people may say, "Yeah, I was the best baseball pitcher at that time." Right. But, uh, but you know, the funny thing is, I never felt that way. And when, so, I, I got your book, and it's a great read, by the way, y'all. But, but um, there's multiple places you can get it. You can go online, go to Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. You can order John's book, and I would recommend it to anybody to read because. When you think about somebody like you who reached a lot of fame in high school on the cover of Sports Illustrated, I think you're the first high school person on the cover of Sports Illustrated. The first high school baseball player. Right. Um, amazing feat at such a young age, being on national TV shows after you set this record. I wasn't expecting right away in the book what you talk about is that you didn't feel like on the outside, you felt really different on the inside than what you were shown on the outside. And that, right. and that you're, and that you didn't have the confidence, um, that you displayed on the mound, which was just overpowering, um, what you would do to batters. But talk about what was going on, you know, as you were growing up playing baseball and you were so good, but there was still a struggle there. Yeah. I, uh, for some reason, it, it was like I was born with a hole in my soul. And, uh, when I was playing baseball, I was happy. It seemed like things were really good. Right. But outside of baseball, I never felt like I fit in, felt like I was fat, felt like I wasn't cute enough, I wasn't smart enough, and um, those self-limiting beliefs, and it was kind of like a a rat was in my head running around in a wheel, and that's all I thought of. I just thought, man, I just don't fit in. I, I never felt worthy, never felt good enough. And I thought it was interesting when I was reading your book, the one one of the parts you talk about is you were much taller than all your teammates at the time. And you had a different uniform one season than the rest of your team. Right. Right. I was, I was taller, um, but I was bigger. I was, I had, I love to eat and I still love to eat, but yeah, the, the uniforms that the league provided wouldn't fit me. And so we had to get a special uniform. And I was thinking about that and that, you know, might not seem like a big deal to, somebody but when you're a kid on a team and you're really trying to fit in and all of a sudden you stick out that was just another little knock like ah, i'm just not like those folks i'm just a little different right right yeah i couldn't wear the same uniform they wore yeah and the other part when reading your book that i thought was interesting is that you seem to have a very normal life i mean you grew up in a small texas town Brenham, texas um famous for bluebell ice cream i'm sure that you hear that a lot mm-hmm. when you go through these things um two loving parents that uh, provided safe place to live, a good environment, supporting through your life. And so I was, what that made me realize is that you just, you still don't know what people are going through unless you walk in their shoes. I mean, you're, you're, yeah. you're, you were raised in what I would consider a very good home and supporting home just from reading the book and the praise mm-hmm. that you've given your parents. Talk about that. Like, yeah, that's true. Um, so my mother was an elementary school teacher or PE teacher and former softball player in college. So she was nonstop playing with me, you know, catching. We were hitting, playing catch, whatever. Dad was a math teacher at Blinn, and so um, he would act kind of like my coach. But he wouldn't say much. And 
But when dad talked, he that I, I really listened because he always had something good to say. He just didn't, it was like he didn't talk just to talk. And he'd always say, uh, John, just focus on the mitt, throw to the target. And that, that was over and over and over again. And I got really good at that. Um, but my parents were always, uh, they were very supportive. Um, they were, I mean, it was, a, it was, I had a good life. I, I grew up with a lot of friends. We could, we weren't, um, there wasn't anything we wanted that we didn't get. Um, it wasn't like they spoiled us to death, but we didn't want for anything. And, um, you know, I, why I felt that way, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I know now, but back then I wouldn't have, I, I didn't have a clue. Right. And I, and I'm just painting that picture because it truly is an idyllic Texas town to this day. It's this small Texas town that when you think of that, you could go to any state and wherever that state is, the small town, Brenham is one of those type towns where it's this, you know, good small town environment. And so it's not like you were raised in a, you know, in a troubled home and had all these other issues. Um, and again, I just think that's, it's important to realize that. You know, when you, when you look at, if you're looking at John's life on the outside and you go back when he's 16, 17 and 18, you couldn't think for somebody to have a better situation with the, the notoriety and the amount of success you were having at that time. But like you said, something wasn't, you just weren't feeling, um, something wasn't right. I mean, you described it as a hole in your heart. And so, you know, talk about the, you know, in the book, there's a whole, process of you going through, you know, starting with, I'm doing this incredible, I'm having this incredible journey of pitching. Then you get hurt and have your first surgery, right? Mm -hmm. And what, what, what starts going through your mind when you're like, okay, I've, this is, this could be devastating to have this surgery. Mm -hmm. And then you've got, and then, I mean, you can talk about it cause you have three more. I mean, you have three total in four years, but when that first one happened during high school, what are you thinking at that point? Um, you know, um, so I got injured a after my sophomore year in high school, that summer I went to the junior Olympics and that's when I got hurt the first time and had surgery. Um, looking back on that, it was kind of, uh, it was kind of confirmation to me cause I was like, uh, yeah, I'm not good enough. Wow. And I didn't feel like I fit in. At the Junior Olympics, because I thought these guys are way better than me. And these I? are the top amateur athletes playing baseball in the yes. U.S. Yes, yes. This was uh, uh, Alex Fernandez who played for the White Sox. He was there. Dan Wilson who played for Seattle Mariners. You know, these were top-notch guys. And I thought, I thought, why, why am I here? I'm not, I'm not that good. Um, so when I got injured, it was kind of a, uh, it was kind of a relief. Cause I was like, okay, now I'm not going to, if people call me a loser, they can call me a loser because my arm gave way. They can't say I failed on the field and I was okay with that. I was like, okay. Nothing uh, I can hurt myself. There's nothing I can do about that. That's right. That was a great excuse. <laughs> well, I mean, that it, it's interesting though, that you're, that, you know, that what's going on with you is driving you in those directions where in a way the escape is what you want. You're, you're wanting to get away from facing your issue and trying to overcome this self doubt. Cause that's just, it's not the easy way. I mean, going through surgery is not anything fun. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But like you said, it's a way for you to say, okay, well, I can't do anything about my arm. My arm's bad. But mm-hmm. you come back from that. I mean, that's your sophomore year, and you come back and have two incredible um, junior and senior years in high school. Right. And talk about you know the progression, though, because after that you come back, and how do you feel internally as you continue with this success? Are you getting worse? Mm, you know, the feelings, of the self-limiting beliefs and right. the feelings of not right. being good enough, not fitting in, those that continued. It didn't get any bigger. Any right. bigger, it just continued. The one thing that I, those self, that the self doubts did help me with was I worked extremely hard and I wanted to outwork anybody else. So I ran a lot. I studied the game a lot. I was like on my game. Um, cause I, I did want to win. Right. Um, and before every game I pitched, the first thought I had was, is this going to be the game I lose? But then once I threw the first pitch, th- that fear went away. It was like, and you should just shut them down. And go. it was like, come on, here we go. And I, in my competitive drive, kicked in, and I was, I was confident. It was like, okay, here we go. So you kind of live for that feeling too, because once you got past that, then you're alive when you're yes. out on the baseball field, and everything else falls away at mm-hmm. that point. And you're just, you're right. And you're like, if I could stay in this moment, wow. Yeah. As soon as the game started. Yeah. Then it was on, you know, I was in the zone. Right. Yeah. That's, that, that's an interesting, um, I think whatever you're doing, when you're doing something competitive like that, once you get into the action, you really become so focused that, you know, a lot of things fall away. But mm-hmm. at the end of the game, last batter gets out, you win the game, which y'all did a lot of back in the day. Y'all won a lot of baseball games. Mm-hmm. We did. You're just starting right back from ground zero, right? It's right back to, okay. Now I've got this self-doubt coming back. I'm not on the field. And you're just dealing with that day after day. Right. Yeah, it was like after the game. After the game was over, then I thought, okay, what's next? Here we go again. Right. Which – and so being a successful pitcher, successful high school athlete, colleges are going to start calling, um, recruiting you. Um, mm-hmm. In the book you talk about – University of Texas was the place you wanted to be. You always, and at that mm-hmm. time, incredible program, well-known coach at the time. And what happened in that situation? And I, I'm not trying to give too much of the book away, but I think there's some highlights in there that, mm-hmm. that yeah. kind of reinforces I did. You like, I'm, I'm not good enough. Right. So, uh, so growing up, that's the only place I wanted to go was University of Texas. My dad would take me to Austin on Saturdays, Sundays. We would be up in the stands watching. Longhorn baseball, right. and I was doing the Longhorn side. I was singing the songs, wearing burnt orange and white, because um, that's the only place I wanted to go. And then, uh, so my senior year, I go, no, my junior year, I go on a recruiting trip there, and um, I just didn't feel good enough. I was like, I, I, "There's no way I can't compete here." I mean, there were. I just looked at everybody and thought, mm, boy, there's no way. Which I think is interesting because I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm from the area. So we, you know, you kind of know the legend of John Peters. I mean, I did see you pitch once and it was in just the amount of crowd that was there. I mean, you really were the best pitcher in this area, if not the best pitcher in the U.S. And here you're going to this university down the road and you don't feel like you belong there. That's a big deal. I mean, because anybody else, 
on the outside would think, well, you can go to any school you want and you're going to be good. <laughs> right? Right. That's a big difference in, in what I would imagine and then what you feel. Right. Yeah. I, I thought University of Texas was way above me. And then, uh, so during the recruiting trip, Coach Gustafson found time to talk to all the families, but he didn't talk to my fam- me and my family. And I used that as an excuse why I wouldn't go to University of Texas. But the reality is because I didn't feel, well, I didn't feel like I fit in. Right. Right. I didn't connect with, it was like, okay, this is foreign to me. Right. So you end up making an interesting decision that, uh, in the state of Texas is a tough decision. You go to Texas A&M University, which is the arch rival to the <laughs> University of Texas, which is the complete opposite. And just, you know, talk about real quick what that experience was like, because now you've, at this point, you, you experienced some more injury, right? Mm-hmm, I do. I chip, but uh, you know, when I went on my recruiting trip to A&M, I had some friends from Brenham yeah. who were there playing. And those, that town, they're real close together. So it's a natural that a lot of people would go to A&M just from Brenham. You know, a lot of people at that university already. Right. So I, I, so I did feel very comfortable right away. Yeah. Plus I, I didn't want to admit that I was a, you know, homeboy, but you know, 45 minutes versus an hour and a half away. That was big for me. Yeah. So, uh, and I wanted to get back to Brenham, you know, every now and then. Um, so that's why I went to, a&M and it was a great choice too but I got there and the fall of my freshman year I get injured within a couple weeks and have to have surgery on my arm I had abnormal bone growth and it seemed like every fall I would get injured at A&M and then I'd have surgery and I'd be rehabbing during spring so I never pitched in a competitive game there and then eventually the the rehab got it after four surgeries I was done just wore you. I mean, it, that wears you out. I mean, it, and I thought if if I do come back, who's going to take a chance on drafting me? Right. Um, guy with forearm surgeries already. I had bad mechanics. It, I was there was not a, there was not a chance somebody was going to take a chance at me. Right. So I mean, your passion at the time, baseball, hundred percent. That's what you're thinking. And then here you are in college. I mean, as a high schooler, I think you dreamed about Major League Baseball and really thought that was attainable at that point because, I mean, if you're success, you go to college, have similar success, and you get drafted by a team, and then you're continuing to pursue that passion. But all of a sudden, you're multiple surgeries down, and you're like, that's the end. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's that? That's just like hitting a brick wall. I would think so. Right. It um After the third – or before the third surgery – I kind of knew in my mind it was over. That was yeah. going to be a Tommy John surgery. And I would never forget I was in Alabama. My mother had gone with me, and we were in the hotel room. The doctor had said, you got, you have to have Tommy John surgery. And I left the hotel room, and I just walked around. And I always like hotel lobbies. For some reason, I still do. It's, it's very relaxing for me. But I went to the hotel lobby, and that was when I kind of came to terms that mm, this may not this baseball career may not happen because it was like everything seems to be going south. Plus, I just, I, I again, I didn't feel good enough. And I could use these surgeries again as an excuse why I didn't, didn't make it big in baseball. Right, right. And, I mean, also for people that 
paid attention to sports and surgery, you were seeing the best surgeon in the nation when it comes to mm-hmm. sports injuries. Right. He so, was the top, right. top dog. I mean, <laughs> people, athletes, pro athletes still go to him today. And like you'll see it on ESPN. Oh, going to see Dr. James Andrews. So you were, I mean, you were getting the best care you could possibly get. Um, so it wasn't a lack of, I mean, you're just at a point where like, this is enough is enough. Right. And so at, you know, it, it's, so that dream's over. Mm-hmm. And what, what's next at that point? How do you over, how do you get out of that? Okay. So the, so, uh, playing days are over, but I, I wanted to coach baseball so I could still stay in it. Um, and it seemed like once, once I stopped playing, or when I was playing, people would say, uh, you know, I'd go places and they'd be like, hey, that's the baseball guy over there. That's, that's the John Peters. And, and I, I, I would hear it everywhere, but it seemed like that, that stopped. And so it was kind of like I lost my identity. You know, here I am as a player. People know me as supposedly, quote unquote, this all American guy who didn't do anything wrong. Uh, now, there's no mention of me. You know, if they see me or whatever, it's just hello, but no more baseball, baseball, baseball. And so at A&M, I started trying to find happiness and other things other than baseball. And then that just led to roadblocks, you know, drinking, drugs, relationships, exercise, food, you name it. It was whatever I can do to fill this hole up because for so long, Baseball had filled it up, and when baseball was gone, this hole was still there. And you coached a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I co- I coached for a few years, and right. and and here again, for my from all for the majority of my life, I always sought the approval of others. I wanted other people to like me, other people to say, oh, you know, how good I am, or whatever. And some people tell me, hey you're not going to make a lot of money coaching. And I loved coaching, but when I heard that, I was like, hmm. And so here again, my negative thinking started. I was like, well, I guess I'm not going to make a lot of money. Maybe I'm not a success or whatever. And so then I got out of coaching baseball. Right. And this whole time, self-doubt has never gone away. Never. And... You're still dealing with that. Yes. Constantly. Right. Right. And, you know, reading through the book, at, you know, at this point, you're like, okay, I've got to go make a career, right? So right. You, you get a job, get married, and just going down the path that everyone else is going down, just trying to make it and provide for your family, but you're not changing internally. Right. Yeah, so you and, get, yeah, it's it was the same thing. It, it basically all I did was age, um, and still felt the same way inside. Right. So what? So this is years now. I mean, we're talking. You know, this is going through your twenties, going through your thirties. So we're going to cover a lot of time. But then what? What starts happening where you start to realize something has to change? <laughs> so well, it took me a long time to figure that out. Right. So, uh, so. When I, during or in my thirties, during my marriage, um, things I thought were going south, I started drinking a lot. And it was for me when I would drink, it was like 
I had self-esteem. I had confidence. I could do anything. And I, I'll never forget taking my first sip of vodka. Vodka. I, I would drink beer. I would drink, um, you know, whiskey, stuff like that. And that stuff, it, it would get me. But it, as soon as I took vodka, it was like, oh, wow. And for some reason, it was, it was like my best friend. That's, that's really what I, how I looked at it. Cause I could, I could drink and immediately these self doubts would go away. Right. And you and, can, I mean, you've been dealing with that for so long that all of a sudden you've now found something that's even helping you out because mm-hmm. you're not on the pitcher's mound. So you can see how well, if I just keep doing this, I feel better. Mm-hmm. And if I felt, if I felt like, you know, if I felt uh, nervous or anxious, I'll just drink a little vodka and I was in the zone. And it just continued and it got worse and worse. And it was affecting the marriage. It was affecting my fatherhood, being father to the kid, two kids. It was affecting the job. Job was going south. And I can remember uh, a lot of those mornings toward the end, I would, I would look at myself in the mirror and say, okay, not drinking today. I'm not drinking today. And I would even pray to God, God, if I don't drink today, can I make a sale? I need I need a sale. I really need to make this sale. You know, I was doing a lot of negotiating. Right. And um and it just what it wasn't working anymore. And so um got got a divorce and on March twenty seventh, two thousand ten is when life really took a change. I just reread that last night in the book, that that exact paragraph where you <laughs> talk about that day. Yeah. So this is just this is leading up to um, divorce and alcoholism just hitting you right in the face, right? Right. I had um, yeah, March twenty seventh, two thousand ten was when I was at my bottom, and I was I was ready to die. I was too chicken to do it. I didn't I didn't have a gun, so you know I wasn't going to do it that way. I didn't have a I didn't know how to. Um, Plus, I was too scared, probably. Yeah. But as I was sitting watch or watching ESPN, playing on the internet and drinking vodka, I just I was I, w- I just wanted to go. It was time to go, and I heard a voice that said, "John, it's okay. Just tell somebody." And immediately, I got peace. It was weird. It you know it sounds weird, but but it it was immediate peace. And I knew exactly where that was coming from. And I, I knew it wasn't a ghost. I knew it wasn't a neighbor. I knew it was God. And, um, and for some reason, I reached out for help. And that was the first time that I can remember ever reaching out for help and admitting to someone that I had a problem or I needed help. Cause I always thought when I, when I grew, growing up, I always thought it was very weak to ask for help and that strong men don't ask for help. And so I never asked for help. And then I always thought it was weak to cry. And sometimes as a kid, I'd cry nonstop. Even an adult, I'd cry and I'd be like, this is, I guess I'm not a man. But finally I reached out for help. And what I found were people that were non-judgmental. They were very loving. They were very caring. They said, come on, let's go. Let's go. We'll help you. I, you know, we're 27 minutes into this interview, and 
this is the most important part of the interview to me um, as a man to know that shame is just rules over men in a lot of way, shame and guilt. And like you said, being able to admit that is just life changing, but being able to admit it to friends who support you and are there for you in a non-judgmental way as you felt was just so overwhelming and so peaceful. Like mm -hmm. I can really, I can finally go be who I really am. Whether that's with problems or without problems, I can finally, and when you were just talking about it, I mean, I was literally getting chills because that's, that's just the part in the book to where, I mean, you're pretty detailed in describing that last, that final day of just sitting there all day, like waking up that morning and sitting there all day until 2.30 in the morning. You've been mm -hmm. drinking all day until 2.30 in the morning. And you hear this voice that's very audible to you. Mm -hmm. And it's, hey, you can tell someone. <laughs> and you call your boss, right? Right. Well, I, yeah, I called quite a few people. But at 2.30 in the morning, not many people right. you know, answered their phone or right. I have it on. But yeah, my boss answered. And as soon as he answered, he said, hey, what's wrong? He knew something was wrong. Yeah, 2.30 in the morning yeah. phone call you usually don't get, <laughs> yeah. right? And he said, I said, boss, I want to die. And he said, I'm on my way over. And when he came over, he said, why do you want to die? I said, boss, I can't stop drinking. And he said, I can't. He said, John, I didn't even know you drank that much. And I'd hid it from so many people. But that was my whole, that was really my whole life. I hid so much. You know, even back when uh, I was going through the record, the media would be there. And if I felt like they were getting too close to me, I always mentioned God. Um, and, cause that was during the politically correct days. And so the media would back off. Right. And, I mean, I, I kind of knew how to stay behind the facade. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then now you have this freeing moment where you're like, I can't do anymore. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't. And that, and that, and you get in life situations where from the background that you and I come from, we understand that there's a point we cannot do it anymore. So we need help. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's this God standing there on the door wide open. Been here the whole time, man. Mm -hmm. What do you want me to do? Right? Yeah. 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 You know, and yeah, for so long I ran from God and I always, always found my value in how I played and I found my worth in the wins. People would talk to me and it, it wasn't like God wasn't, you know, talked about with me. I believed that there was a God, but people would say, John, it's about the personal relationship with Christ. And I thought, I don't get it. And I was trying to put other people's God in my box. And then on that day when I heard the voice, it was kind of like, I got it. God wants, God just wants to be my best friend. And when I started thinking of it that way, it was like, okay, wow, this is my relationship with Christ. It isn't. Anybody else's. And that's when life started changing. And that was when the hole in my soul was filled and it hadn't been, it hadn't been empty since. And you, and to get love, to feel love at your lowest point, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, like there's somebody out there that loves me, not, um, like I'm a mess. <laughs> hey, John, come to me. Right. Right. And I, that, that's a powerful, it's, um, it's, Powerful to, to find that revelation of like, wow. I mean, nobody's perfect. No. 
everybody has, everyone has a mess. And I think that's, you know, your story, we, we, there's so much good detail in this book that talks about what you went through in high school that, um, isn't, I mean, there's just a lot there. I would really recommend everybody to read it because you just think that when you look on the outside and you're not somebody's shoes, you think that you have everybody, like in your case, you had the world, you mm-hmm. had everything and you struggled mightily mm-hmm. and you're into your late thirties when, when we go back to 2010, yeah, 30, 39, 39. And it's at that point, 39 years in life. You're like, man, I'm finally going to catch a break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But even that, and, you know, and, and it, all it took was me saying, okay, God, here I am. Right. Yeah, let me turn my life. Let me let you guide this. Right. Let me guide this ship. I, mean, I was rereading that last night um too because you, you know you come you go to rehab come out of rehab but it's not like john's 100 percent fixed at this point mm-hmm. i mean we all still um are dealing with issues and you do have a relapse within a few months right right and go back to another center mm-hmm. and come back out of that but talk about that not necessarily the relapse journey but i mean you're still kind of at a ground zero point of you trying to heal from all these wounds and all these things that you're dealing with in the past 40 years. So what's that like? You know, that's 2010. What is it like 10, 11, 12, as you start to heal and things like that? Mm. The, uh, the first, the, the drinking was, uh, after my second rehab, the drinking obsession kind of went away and I have not had any urge impulse to drink Actually, just thinking about it kind of makes me sick at my stomach. Um, but the part, the, the part that dr- the drinking was just to cover up what was going on with me. And so I really, once I started focusing on being God centered and helping others and getting out of myself, cause I was so John centered, you know, it's like, what do I want? What do I need? What do I desire? You know, I, I'm entitled to whatever. Once I started, putting others before me and seeking out how I could help them, then that's when life changed. But it didn't, it didn't change, you know, so drastic overnight. Right. I, I did a lot of work with counselors. Um, but I got, you know, we have a saying clean. We, I had to clean house. I had to get rid of the wreckage and make amends for what I had done. Cause I'd hurt a lot of people. It was, I was like a tornado going through some of these, <laughs> some of my friends' lives, just right. going on nonstop. Um, so I cl- clean, they, they would say clean house, trust God and help others. And that was it. They, they kept telling me, John, it's real simple. That's all you have to do. <laughs> yeah. It sounds real easy. <laughs> yeah. It sounds real easy. Yeah. And, uh, but the, the, the trusting God was a big part. And then once, once I kind of got, comfortable with trusting God and taking steps and leaps of faith and seeing that, wow, God does have my back here. Good things are happening. Then it was so much easier just to continue and just blow and go for God. And then you start to trust people mm-hmm. more and more. Right. Yeah. That's um, in the, in the big thing was um, I've always been, I've always wanted to help. I've always loved helping people and I, I've always had a heart of kind of compassion, but it, 
since I've been sober and getting close to God, I think my, the love portion of my heart has really increased because it was, it was hard for me to love myself because I, I thought I was worthless. Um, and so it was like I was loving people conditionally as opposed to unconditionally. You know, if they did something for me, oh, I, you know, I loved them. And it was kind of, you know, if, what are they going to do for me now? As opposed to now it's like, it, I don't care what I get. You don't have to do anything in return. And, you know, your passions change now from baseball to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. Yeah, big. Yeah, from yeah, that's a big, that was a big jump, right? From one hundred percent baseball to now one hundred percent Jesus. It, but it's so, but it's it has been so much fun, and I can remember in, in late two thousand fourteen. So I'm sober for almost uh, uh, four years, and I'm s- sitting in the recliner, and I'm thinking, John, I got to do more because I was like being okay with being status quo, and I was that that's not really my personality and i knew what god was telling me to do and i knew it and he said he was telling me john get out there and share your talents your skills your abilities your experiences with others share your story and i can remember saying nope nope not we're not gonna do that not gonna do that I said, and i was like god what if i fall on my face what if i fail what if people think i'm a you know, I'm a holy roller, you know, they keep, and I just went on and on and on. But the more I delayed it, the bigger the tug was at my heart. And it just kept coming. It kept coming. And finally, when I said, okay, I'm all in, where do you want me? To, where do you want me? What do you, what do you want me to do? It was like the fear went away. And you sit down and write a book. And it's been fun. <laughs> and it's like doors are opening and people are calling to, for speaking engagements and, yeah. And, you know, in the, I struggle, I, I still struggle from time to time, but the main thing I struggled with at that time was, I was like, God, I'm not qualified. I'm not qualified. You know, I don't know the Bible inside and out. I, and it was like, Hey, he was like, he was saying, Hey, it don't matter. Let's, let's go. You know me and you're going to know me more. Let's go talk about me. So that's what, that's what we've done. And you know, there's going to be a, varied audience listen to this and there's going to be people that might think that you and I are crazy for having this conversation because they don't they don't believe in God or understand God and I'm sure when you speak in crowds you have people that are like that not that they're coming up and confronting you but what do you say to those people that are like that don't really understand like what you've been through that that, that God's real and that it was a life-changing event and that it's still a life-changing event and this pursuit of Jesus is still shaping your lives what do you say to those folks so so I would this is a real life story and I'll share this, uh, kind of down those lines. A friend of mine uh, back in the, I don't know, three, four or five years ago, she called me one day and she said, Hey, uh, can we talk about this Jesus thing? I was like, sure. She's like, all my friends that talk about Jesus are, they seem happy. They're smiling. She goes, and I just can't get my arms around it. And so I shared with her. I said, Hey, just stay open-minded. And I said, for me, the more I saw him, the more I found him. I said, stay open-minded, pray and ask him, hey, what's it look like? What's it smell like? What's it taste like? And so um, that's what I would encourage people to do. I'm not going to beat it down someone's throat. I've always been 
big on action. So if I see someone acting a certain way, that's more appealing to me than anything they can say. Um, but if there's if you're struggling with something or you just don't don't know for sure if there's a God or don't know about this Jesus thing, I would say it's okay. I've been there, but just stay open minded and let him let you know see what happens. And I, I think about what you're doing with sharing your story with everyone and writing this book and being transparent and in an age when. We're talking, you know, men are supposed to be strong and they're not supposed to have feelings in a lot of ways and they're not, they're not supposed to cry. Um, but to do all that and to just lay it all out on the line. I mean, this book right here is very transparent. You lay everything out and that's just a great story to people to realize that they're not alone. There's somebody else out there that's struggling the exact same way you are that thinks that admitting that is failure, that they're not a strong person and your testimony here of saying, no, there's there's a different way, and you can win. Mm-hmm. I think that's incredible. Yeah, when I became vulnerable, and I, yeah, when I became vulnerable, and I became okay with who I was, that's when life really took off. And because I was open minded and allowed God in, right, and didn't run from him, he he really changed my heart. And on on the twenty seventh of March, he uh, I knew that was him, and he not only saved my life, he started changing my heart right there. Yeah, and, and you're a different person today. And it's been yeah, it's been incredible. That's awesome. <laughs> well, I I appreciate you doing this interview today. I, you know, like I said, if I think back four months ago, I'd have never thought that John Peters and I'd be sitting down talking about a book that you wrote. Um, but that's where God weaves these stories together. And that's where you're right. Four years ago, I don't know what, I mean, four months ago, I wouldn't know I'd be sitting here, but God knew that, well, you're going to be sitting in this house doing an interview and we're going to be talking about this book. So I, I appreciate that a lot. And again, um, this book, John Peters, when life grabs you by the baseballs, finding happiness in life's change up. What a great title for a book that's baseball, <laughs> you know, about a baseball, but this is so much, this book is so much more than baseball. That's John's story through high school, but this is a story of redemption. This is a story of healing. This is a story of coming to terms with lifelong struggles and finding all that in Jesus and now being vulnerable enough to tell everyone what your true story is. And it's a great one. I appreciate it. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Sign Out Podcast. Uh, This episode was produced by Daniel Thornton and myself, Caleb J. Murphy. Big thanks to John Peters for doing this interview. Make sure you check out his website, john, that's J-O-N, peters.org, johnpeters.org. Check out his book, When Life Grabs You by the Baseballs. If you'd like to stay up to date on what we are up to at Sign Out, make sure you subscribe to us by email. Visit signoutco.com. The music in today's episode was actually produced by me. If you want to hear more music, you can check out my website at calebjmurphy.com. And thanks so much for listening.